0: Our text this morning is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 through chapter 5, verse 2. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find this on page 978 of that Bible. For The past number of months, with a uh, detour during Advent, we've been looking at the book of Ephesians. And as we've been looking at this book, each, each week we've been asking this question, how does this book... Teach us or inform us about what it means for us to become a community of grace or to become more of a community of grace? What does it mean for us? What does this teach us about what it means to be God's people in this place, here, following Him together, becoming a people of grace? Now, we've seen in the first half of the book, Paul lays this uh, theological foundation of indicatives, statements, things that are true about us because of Jesus talks about what God has done from eternity past in calling a people to himself. Of doing all that was required to bring those people to life and to relationship with him. Okay, all this majestic view of, of God's sovereign, caring, and careful control over our lives and over the universe. And then the second half of the book of Ephesians, he moves from the indicatives, what's true about God. He moves into the imperatives. What does it mean for us as God's people to live in light of this? What's this going to mean for our lives? as we've started to see, and you are going to see this morning and in the next few weeks, uh, that gets uncomfortably specific. Paul starts to take on a lot of specific things about our lives. Um, this passage that we're looking at this morning addresses several issues. This morning we're going to talk about our speech. It also talks about our anger, which we're going to talk about next week, and we're going to go on from there. Um, it brings up uncomfortable issues. Uncomfortable because we don't necessarily like to think that specifically about the ramifications of what God's saying to us. How is this really supposed to work out in mundane things like our speech? Uh, John Stott, in his commentary in the book of Ephesians, says this. Holiness is not a mystical condition experienced in relation to God, but in isolation from human beings. You cannot be good in a vacuum, but only in the real world of people. Paul is talking to us about what does it mean for us to be God's people, not in a vacuum, but here in the real world of people rubbing shoulders with each other. So as we get ready to look at this passage in Ephesians 4, let's come to the Lord and pray and ask that he would open this up to us. Let's pray. Father, this is your word to us. Um, We pray that you would use it to speak to us even this morning by the power of your spirit. We are in need of a word from you. We need you to restore sanity to our lives. We need you to restore uh, right perspective to our lives. And we certainly need you, Father, to restore a right use of words to our lives. So we pray that you'd be with us now, again, by the power of your Spirit, that you would bring Jesus to us in your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we do pray together. Amen. Okay, let's read this passage again. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through chapter 5, verse 2. Therefore, be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us, and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, as I mentioned, we're going to be speaking about words this morning. Um, my family, the family, my family, when we grew, when I grew up, we we cared a lot about words. People were very careful with their words. Part of the reason for that comes from a couple generations away, my grandfather, who came to live with us. Um, after my grandmother passed away when I was in high school and early in college, loved words. And it rubbed off on the rest of us. He's one of those guys um, that you don't ever want to play Scrabble with. <laughs> you know, uh, that just he, he, He'd pull out words that you've, you've never heard of, but you just knew that you didn't have to look it up in the dictionary because it, it, it really had to be an actual word because he just, he just played it. He's one of those, if you played Scrabble, you might not know that it, I don't know if it says this in the directions, but people who really play Scrabble, if you're the person playing the first turn, you have to start with a five-letter word. And he wouldn't let you play anything less than that. He's like, you're going to have to bring your A-game if you're going to play Scrabble with your grandfather. And I was like 12. So my family, my family cared about words. My, we grew up where, frequently in conversation, multiple times a week at least, over dinner, somebody would say something or use a word, and, and somebody would be pulling out the dictionary or the encyclopedia. And I remember my wife Elizabeth, the first few times she came to visit our family, she thought, what, what planet are you people from <laughs> that you're pulling out a dictionary in the middle of dinner? But in my family, words words mattered. Now, in our text, we're going to see that words matter. But here's the thing. For Paul, as he writes this letter to the Ephesians, he's not simply saying that a good vocabulary matters, that your choice of the best possible term matters. He's saying Not simply that the words themselves matter, but the intention of our words matter. The way we put those words to use has great effect in our community. Our words and our use of our words matter. It matters that we put them to the use for which God's intended them. So here's the point for this morning. As members of God's new people, that Paul spent the first few chapters elaborating, here's, here's who we are as God's people. For us as God's new people that he's calling out, we are called To put off words of death and to put on words of life. To learn to speak in a whole new way. This passage we're going to see teaches us a few things about the way we speak. It shows us three things. The foundation of our words, the power of our words, and the hope for our words. Okay, The foundation of our words, the power of our words, and the hope for our words. First, the foundation of our words. Look at verse 25 with me. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Paul immediately launches into this idea of, of truth, truth rather than falsehood. And he says the foundation for our words as God's community of people is that they have to be grounded in truth. Now he refers back to this break with the past. We talked about this last week, and it's in, the first, in these preceding ten verses or so, where Paul says that when you came to Christ... You put off this old self and you put on a new self. You became somebody entirely new. Something dramatically different happened in your life when you, when Christ called you to himself. Now Paul's gone on to say, we need to live in light of that. If you put off this old self, then you need to put off all the things that go with it. And you need to take on all the things that go with this new self Christ has created us to be. And what he's saying here is, When that happened to you, when Christ called you to himself, he said you put off falsehood. You walked away from what is false into what is true. And he's saying now, we have to live in what is true. We find that, as Paul points out, the truth, it's not simply this abstract thing, but it's now rooted in a person. That we find truth now, not just out there in the universe, but we find it in Jesus. Look at verse 21, again, backing up to the passage from last week. He he says, you have heard about him, Christ. You were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. He said, all this teaching you've received points you not just to a set of facts, but to a person who is the truth. That sounds a lot like what Jesus himself said. John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, me. I, I am the truth. Jesus says, it's embodied in me. And we know that throughout Scripture, that God himself is a God of truth. We don't just see that in Jesus. If you think back to the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20, when when God's people received the Ten Commandments, the Ninth Commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Okay, now why is that the case? All of the Ten Commandments, why? Arbitrary rules that God has somehow sort of imposed upon our lives (laughs) to bring constraint. Not at all. What do the Ten Commandments do? They tell us how we were meant to live because they reflect the very nature of God himself. When God says, don't commit adultery, why does he say that? Because he is a God who is faithful to his people. And he's created us to reflect that by being faithful to each other. When he says, don't steal, why? Because he's a God who adequately and abundantly provides for his children. And so we're to reflect that, not by taking from others, but by giving, by being generous. By not stealing. Why does he say, don't speak things that are false? Because he is a God of truth who doesn't speak lies to us. Now, flip this around. What if that were not true? What would it be like for us if God was a God who twisted the truth, who lied, who couldn't be trusted to give the straight story? What if, when we opened up scripture, we couldn't trust that this really was his word to us and was reliable and true? Okay, now I'm not talking about all the questions that many people have, and maybe some of us have, about whether or not this book that we have, is this really what God spoke to us? Is it really reliable? Okay, good questions. That's not the question I'm asking this morning, but let's say this, let's say we know this is his word. It's God's word to us, but can I trust it? Is God in this word telling me things that are really true? Now, what if that were not the case? We'd be in the worst possible situation. We would know that God is real. We'd know that he's spoken to us. But we know that those words couldn't be trusted; that we had to always evaluate them. We always had to weigh them. Is this? Can I listen to this one? Think about what that does to some of the great statements of the Bible, of assurance and hope that we're given. In Matthew 11:28, Jesus says this: "Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest." Really? Will, will he really do that? Is he speaking the truth to me? What about Romans 10:13? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Can we trust that? Is He speaking truth to us there? Can I bank on that? Titus 3, verses 4 and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Can I trust that? Does God really save me because of His goodness and not my own? Or is He lying to me here and I really need to be good enough to earn His favor? Is God trustworthy? How about this one? Hebrews 13, five. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Can I really be that free with my money? Can I really trust him that much with my financial security? Because he's promised not to leave me or forsake me. Is that true? If it is, then imagine the life and the freedom that speaks to us. God's trustworthy. And he has this in his hands. But if it's a lie, then it leaves us only in anxiety. In Matthew chapter 6, a Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes through this discourse and he says, don't be anxious about anything in your life. God's going to feed you. He's going to provide for you. He's going to give you everything you need. If that's not true, we're only left with this anxiety that's going to grip our soul. But in reality, we do follow a God who speaks truth to us, whom we can rely upon, who cares for us, and speaks only truth to us and because of that as God's people we are called to be a people who speak truth also we follow the God of truth and we are to reflect that by being a people of truth now the foundation of our speech its truth the context of our speech comes in a community look at, again what he says in verse 25 put away falsehood let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members one of another this is body language language of being connected to each other, of being intimately tied to one another. What you do, and for our purposes this morning, what you say drastically affects the people around you. Um, Elizabeth and I, we lived in Chapel Hill, the pastor at the church we attended made this statement once that stuck with us. He said, you don't sin in a vacuum. Everything you do affects everyone else around you people within this body of believers, people within the larger circle, the community that you rub shoulders with, we don't sin in a vacuum and we don't speak in a vacuum. Earlier in chapter 4 and verse 15, Paul says that we are to speak the truth in love. God is God of truth, so we speak truth. And we are intimately tied with one another, so we speak in love. We bring words of truth and love. The foundation of our words, it's truth. Okay, now the second thing this passage shows us is the power of our words. This was driven home to me, um, it'll be 10 years ago in February, uh, when uh, Elizabeth, my wife, we were unmarried at the time, and she was living in Colorado. I'll spare you all the gory details. We had a lot of on and off again phases in our dating. All the offs were my own fault. And after a long series of that, Elizabeth's working in Colorado, and I come to the realization, this is the person that I want to spend the rest of my life with. I want to marry her. So what I do. got on a plane. I flew out to Colorado. I rented a car. And I drove to this place where she was working. And I surprised her. And I pulled out a ring, got down on a knee, and said, will you marry me? Do you feel the uncomfortable silence? (laughs) This is nothing compared to what I felt that day. For eternities... I'm, I'm sitting there looking at her, and she's not saying anything. Now, in reality, it was at least five minutes. If you've ever been in the situation of asking an important question, you know that that is a really long time. And I'm starting to think this is not going well. <laughs> but I knew I knew that the next words that came out of her mouth were going to have power in my life, for good or for ill. It was, they were going to change the course of my life those words were going to have power. And Paul tells us that all of our words have power. Words are inherently powerful, not just the I do's of our life, but all our words have power. Uh, Proverbs 18.21 says this, The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. That the tongue has power. Now, switch the metaphor for a minute. Imagine, imagine nuclear power. Okay, it can bring great good and it can bring great harm. You can go across the river here and you can build a nuclear power plant and it can provide power for lots of people. Things that bring good things into our life. And you can use the same technology to build a missile and bring great harm into somebody's life. But either way, nuclear power is exactly that. It's powerful. And Paul is saying like that, our words have power and it can be used one of two ways. One, it can bring death or it can bring life. Let's look at bring death. Verse 29, Paul says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up. No corrupting talk. What is corrupting talk to? It, it, it destroys, it undermines. The, the word for corrupting here in the Greek, the same word that you'd use for fruit that's rotting on your counter. It's corrupting from the inside out. It's falling apart. It's bringing damage. Back to the nuclear illustration. Some of us um, use our words like this. We launch nuclear missiles into other people's lives, and they cause enormous explosions. Most of us are more subtle than that, though. Okay, We're not launching nuclear missiles. Uh, we're just setting off dirty bombs. right? You know what a dirty bomb is? It doesn't have nearly the big explosion, but it's got nuclear stuff in it that sprays radiation that affects everybody around them. Not as big an explosion, but just as corrupting. Uh, I'm told, I read, that in nuclear subs, okay, now everything I learned about nuclear subs, I learned from Tom Clancy. But in nuclear subs, (laughs) sailors apparently, uh, you know, have have this badge on their uniform, and if there's ever a leak in, in the reactor, then you can check that badge and find out how much radiation that you've been exposed to. Radiation that leaks out. Now let me ask you this. Your family, your friends, everybody you come in contact with has a radiation badge on the front of their clothes. And how much radiation are they getting from you? That dirty bomb that we carry around. Our speech. How many of our words are causing this radioactive damage in other people's lives? And what what does your wife's little meter say? What about your kids? What about your friends? James 3.8 says, The tongue is a restless evil, and it's full of dead, deadly poison. And we all know what it's like to feel that poison from somebody else's words or to spread it. And this has been uh, hammering home in my own life for years and years. When I was in high school, um, well, all, all my life, my, my primary go-to mode of humor is sarcasm. And when I was in high school, some friends said to me, why don't you tr- see how long you can go without making a sarcastic comment? I don't think I opened my mouth for the rest of the day. Every comment I felt welling up, it just, not necessarily purposely destructive of somebody, but it just had that sort of sarcastic edge to it, that twist to it. And I found myself not knowing how to speak at all. What about uh, verse 31? He brings up another specific speech issue. In the middle of talking about anger, he says, Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger clamor and slander be put away from you. Okay, if our speech can corrupt, slander is this direct assault on somebody else in the community that not only brings radiation in the lives of people around you, but destroys that person as well. All these things, these ways we use our speech tear apart our community. It corrupts the hearers. Verse 27, it gets sharper still. He says, uh, give no opportunity to the devil. And what's he saying? Our speech can be used uh, in line with the purposes of Satan. That we can use our speech in such a way that we aid and abet the enemy. That we contribute to his purposes. Uh, Listen to what Paul Tripp says about this in his book, uh, War of Words. In fact, brief promo that's in your bulletin. You'll see the title of that book. Very helpful on speech. And we have a few copies of it here in the office if you'd like one. But listen to what he says about how we aid Satan in our speech. He says, Satan is a liar and a trickster. He seeks to divide and destroy. He is the enemy of all that is good and right. He seeks to sow the weeds of doubt, despair, rebellion. He hates living faith. He fights new life. He seeks to turn us from God and against one another. We have to be wise to his tricks and do anything we can to keep him from having his way with us. We must forbid him any room to work. And Paul says that when we use our speech in corrupting ways, we're going along with those purposes of destroying the people around us. But even more pointedly, look at verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. This is astounding. Paul says that when we use our words in wrong ways, that we grieve the Holy Spirit himself. You know, we think things like this. They're just words. They're not just words to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who the one who himself speaks life, and truth into our own lives. He hear us, hears us speaking things that contradict that truth, and he grieves. Okay, now our words, imagine this. Our words are like are like a dimmer switch on, on, on your chandelier in your dining room. Okay? And you can turn that switch to the right, and you can turn up the wattage, and you can turn up the light, or you can turn it to the left, and you can dim the wattage. You can take the power out of it. And when we do that, when we speak these words that are corrupting, we're taking that dimmer switch and we're turning it to the left. We're chasing out the light and we're bringing in more darkness. We're chasing away hope and we're bringing darkness into our relationships, into our community, this community of God's people. And you know what it's like when you speak words like that. Purely hypothetical example. Let's say you happen to be uh, the young father of two small children and you took them to Lowe's, say yesterday. Because, because you got a project at home and you needed to get some stuff. You know what it's like when you go to Lowe's and you only do a project at home every once in a while? The, it involves going to six different aisles, but you go to each of them twice because you forget stuff and keep going back and forth. And your kids are getting tired, understandably. And So finally, you make it to the checkout line. And there's two lines there right next to them. And the line on the right has two people, and the one on the left has one person. So you go to the line on the left. And the person in front of you is, is one of those customers. Uh, not his fault, not his fault, some sort of complicated transaction, and it takes a while to get through, and the cashier's standing there, and the, the manager's standing there. Well, they finish, and they wish him a good day, and then the cashier turns around, and I'm standing there, the cashier turns around and leaves, and the manager kind of looks around, and I sort of put my stuff on the table, and he said, oh, well, this, this lane's actually been closed. <laughs> and meanwhile, three other people have lined up next to me on the right. There are a variety of things that you could say in a situation like this. How about about this one? It would have been really nice if you had told me that. I've been standing here waiting to check this stuff out. Our words have the power to either turn up the switch or turn down the dimmer switch. And often we choose to turn down the lights. And what does Paul say? Put these things off. They belong to the old person. Put them off. You've been made new in Christ. Now, words not only have the power to bring death, they have the power to bring life. Look in verse 29. Again, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. You see, Paul knows throughout this passage, it's not simply enough just to put off something bad, but you have to put on something that's its opposite and good. He doesn't simply say put off these words of death, but put on words of life. Now, let's look at a couple things about this. First, what, what's the goal of our words? Well, Paul right here says the goal of our words is that we, might, that we might speak what is good for building others up. Again, if you think about the nuclear power, instead of launching missiles or dirty bombs, we're building power plants that actually bring something good. You know what these feel like? Words that, that don't leave you empty or don't leave the one receiving them empty, but somehow full in a way you didn't expect. What's Paul saying? He says, in Christ we become people who now have a whole new agenda for our words. And this runs much deeper than simply learning to say a few encouraging platitudes. I'm a Christian now, so I should say things like Have a blessed day, brother. Is that an okay thing to say? Sure. That Paul's talking about something that runs much deeper simply than choosing new words like that. What's he saying? Our speech is to be bent to a whole new purpose. That we would actually speak redemptively into people's lives. God's doing a total overhaul in our lives of what our words are even for. It's the opposite, as Paul said earlier, of corrupting words. Instead of corrupting, what are we going to do? We're going to build up. Now, it's easy to see sometimes those examples of those very harmful words and those very good words, but you know how many words of ours are simply wasted? Just wasted air. Words are, like, words are like calories, okay? There are some that are bad and there's some that are good and there's some that seem to just sort of be empty, right? Trans fats. My wife tried to explain to me today what a trans fat. I still don't know what a trans fat is, but I know that they're bad. <laughs> and there's some chemists in this room that could explain to us what they are. We all know that there are calories that are bad for you. Protein. We all know that there are calories that are good for you. But how many times did your parent tell you when you're growing up and you reach for a Coke, they said, those are just empty calories. You know, Those are just going to do nothing for you. They're just taking up space. We've all been in conversations where you could feel the radiation coming your way. But we've all also been in conversations where just nothing was happening. It was just wasted talk. Volumes of our social interactions are like this talk with people, other even other Christians, even people within our own community of believers, where we just talk and nothing seems to happen. Now, the ironic thing is that we tend to walk away from conversations like that, thinking things like this. I just don't feel connected to those people. They just don't know me, and I don't feel like I really know them because we've been wasting our words. Empty calories. Use the calorie thing. Every, every conversation you have is a meal. Okay? shared with somebody else. Now, as you know, in uh, over in Colonial Williamsburg, in Merchant Square, there's one building that holds two restaurants. And I think they're probably owned by the same people and there's not even a door in between them. You've got the Fat Canary on the left-hand side and you've got the Cheese Shop on the right. And when you walk up to that building, if you take the left door and walk into the Fat Canary, you're going to be seated at this elegant table and you're going to be given this Uh, amazing wine list and a gourmet menu and you're going to eat food that makes you want to slow down to enjoy it to savor it and it might get you thinking, familiar with the end of the Bible when we see this beautiful picture of Jesus returning and having this marriage feast with his people and at the fat canary you're going to get a, a glimpse of that you're going to enjoy a meal. Now, what you could do too is you could take the door to the right and walk into the cheese shop. Uh, depending on the time of the day, you might find mass chaos there. But what are you guaranteed to find in the cheese shop? You're going to find you're going to find a sandwich, chips, and a coke. Okay, that's fine. But here's the thing: in our conversations, in the meals that are our conversations, some of us never take the left door. Some of us never walk into that meal that is bountiful, that's beautiful, and that gives us a whole different take on our lives. And we need to be walking into the left door. We need to be having those conversations with each other. Now, how are we going to do that? Paul goes on to that in verse 29. It says two things to us. First, he says that we should, uh, that he says, uh, only such is good for building we're building up as fits the occasion. First, the first thing that we do to speak words like this is to consider the occasion as fits the occasion. You see, right speaking takes real work. And you know this. Not all good words fit the situation. Maybe you've been in this conversation with your spouse, and your spouse is explaining all the difficult things that happened that day, okay, all the hard things. And so you're immediately thinking about all the solutions, let's say, to those problems. And if you start to express those, you might find this disconnect between the helpful advice you're trying to offer and what your spouse is really asking for. Because what your spouse was asking for was not a set of solutions to your problems. They wanted empathy. They wanted somebody to just say, wow, that's, that was a hard day. Or it, it gets more confusing than that. Maybe you're talking to your spouse, <laughs> and you're presented with the same list, and may, maybe your spouse is actually asking for sympathy. But maybe in that particular situation, what they need is something that looks more like exhortation. You can't keep listening to this. We've got to talk about what's true. Okay, finding the right words and matching them in the situation, in the right situation, can often be really difficult. And Paul says, consider the occasion. Part of that is you have to know the person that you're speaking to. How does this person work? What's the best way to communicate to this particular person? If you have children and you have more than one, you're amazed at the fact that from the same genetic pool you can have two kids that are so drastically different. And that you might need to speak the same truth to both those kids, but they're going to hear it in very different ways. And you have to know the person in order to speak in such a way that they're going to be able to hear. You might have found that situation growing up with your own parents. Two people wired very differently. If I need to go tell mom something, I need to go about it this way so she can hear it. If I need to tell dad something, I need to go about it in a very different way. How am I going to speak the truth in a way that they're going to hear? You have to know the person, but you also have to know their situation. What's going on with this person? What do they need? Do they need a reminder? Are they forgetting what's true in their lives? Do they need sympathy? Are they in the middle of deep disappointment? Are they in struggle? Do they need encouragement? Are they stuck in the middle of depression? Are they battered down? Do they need our silence? Do they need us just to sit there with them for a while? Do they need rebuke? Even rebuke, rightly done, can bring life. Proverbs 25.12 says this, Like an earring of gold or an ornament of fine gold is a wise man's rebuke to a listening ear. We have to know somebody's situation, and we have to begin with listening carefully. Speaking redemptively into somebody else's life always begins with the ears and not with the tongue. It begins with our listening and not with our speaking. It involves good questions. It involves asking follow-up questions. One of the most single most helpful things I learned in my entire time in seminary was in a counseling class when our professor said this. He said, you don't know until you ask. You think you know, but you don't know until you ask. And here was his example. He said, I was counseling a, a couple, marriage couple, about problems in their marriage, and they mentioned that they had had a fight the previous night, and he said, okay, and they just kind of kept talking, and then he, he, he stopped him and he said, well, let's back up to that, because he realized, okay, they said a fight, and maybe a fight for them is a little different than a fight for my wife and myself, and he said, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, when my wife and I have a serious fight, she kind of goes off and starts doing housework, and I get in a huff and pull up my newspaper and try to look sulky and read it for a while, and then we sort of melt and talk. That's a fight in my house. But he said, maybe that's not a fight in everybody's house. So he said, tell me about this fight. And they said, well, husband says, well, I, I was up at the top of the stairs, and my wife was downstairs behind a sofa, and we both had guns and we were shooting at each other. <laughs> you know, a fight is not a fight. Is not a fight. You know, uh, you don't know. You don't. You don't know until you ask. What is going on in that person's life? If we don't stop and ask there's a good chance we won't know and we will simply project our own lives onto them. If we're going to be people who speak to each other, then we have to listen carefully. Maybe you've heard comments like this and said them often. It's been a hard week. Okay, what does that mean? Ask the question. It might be, you know, I had this project at work and it was a struggle and it just didn't quite turn out the way I wanted it to. It was a hard week. It might be my grandfather passed away this week and we were very close. It's been a hard week. You don't know until you ask. Or some version of this. You know, I hear this. I've been, sp- I've been feeling spiritually dry. Okay, that might mean that you've been a little discouraged praying this week and you just, it just hasn't been working for you, you feel like. Or it could mean that you're on the verge of abandoning your faith and turning away from God. You don't know until you ask. So here's maybe a question to guide us as we think about relating to other people. When you're talking to somebody, at the end of that conversation, can you articulate for them what their world feels like? Could you say, whether you say it this way or not, could you say, you know, it sounds like you're saying that your life feels like this, this, and this, with a little bit of this thrown in. And they say, that's exactly right. Are we asking questions? Are we learning the situation? Are we knowing the occasion such that really listening and really know the other person's life. Okay, so the first thing is consider the occasion. Second thing is consider the outcome. Again, back in verse 29, that it may give grace to those who hear. That the effect of our words in other people's lives would give grace. That it would open our eyes. That our words would restore perspective. That they would replace hopelessness with hope. That they would confront our addiction, our franticness, and replace it with gospel calm and hope and peace. This is an astounding point. That God says that our words can bring his grace into somebody else's life. That he can use us to speak grace to someone else. And he says, in fact, that in God's new community, the church, us, this is supposed to be the one, one of the main ways in which we actually do experience God's grace by us speaking God's grace into each other's lives. You've heard me over the previous months uh, pulling out illustrations from Band of Brothers occasionally. So here's one more. Uh, World War II, the uh, 101st Airborne, it's the story of some of the men in one particular company going through World War II. And in one of the battles, there's a uh, soldier who has been, um, you, you see him being crushed by his fear as the days wear on he's withdrawn and eventually he ends up uh, you know away from the front line in their makeshift infirmary and he's sitting in a corner and he's blind can't see anything and his uh, commanding officer uh, lieutenant winters is in there uh, having some shrapnel pulled out of his leg and he is universally respected and admired by his men and he's talking to the medic he looks over and he says what's wrong with Blythe over there? He says he can't see. He said, "Well, what happened?" He said, "He just he can't see." So he says, "Okay," and he goes over and he talks to him and he says, "You know, Blythe, you can't see." He said, "No, sir, not not a thing." He kind of looks at him and he and he says, "Okay, we're gonna, we're going to take care of you. It's 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 going to be okay." And then he walks off. And you see this guy Blythe starting to blink his eyes and shake his head a little bit. And he says, "Lieutenant, I I can see again." And he sort of stumbles to his feet, and he picks up his rifle, and he says, I, I think I'm okay. And he wanders out of the infirmary back to his place in the line. Something happened there. Words of hope that broke through this fear. And literally, he could see again. Psychological, the caused it, okay. But it was words of hope from someone else that brought life and seeing back into this soldier's life Remember we talked about the dimmer switch? These words of hope that bring grace turn the switch to the right. It ups the wattage. It, it drives away the darkness. It brings light. Now remember our hypothetical father in the Lowe's? checkout line yesterday. <laughs> let's say this person gave the response that you heard, and let's say the cashier looked at him and said, I think it was probably a manager, looked at him and said, um, Well, you're right. Um, I didn't see anybody else in that line. Let me check you out right now. Turning up the wattage. When you turn the wattage up in other people's lives, dramatic things happen, sometimes like repentance. Immediately I find myself saying, I'm so sorry. I was incredibly rude. I apologize. He could have said a million things. He could have turned around and left left the lane closed. And instead, he turned up the wattage. And it brought light into the situation, and it brought light for me, somebody in that moment who very much needed it. Now, I've been on both the giving and receiving end of these words. I've been on campus in our coffee shop. I've had conversations in my office with some of you um, where we begin to ask questions like this. What is God, what's he maybe up to in your life right now? What's going on in this situation? You feel hopeless, you feel dry, you feel abandoned right now. But let's talk about the real hope that Christ speaks into your life even right now. And we talk about the love of Christ. And what happens? The, The lights, they begin to come on again. Mysteriously, the Holy Spirit uses weak words like that of pointing back to the gospel to say, here's what is true about your life. And you start to see the lights come back on. More power comes back into the life. People see again. Over a cup of coffee. God turning up the lights in our conversations. And I've been on the receiving end too. People looking into my life and speaking words of life and perspective and reminder and hope. Brandon, you're not believing what is true about this situation. You're forgetting the truth again. God is at work here. You need to open your eyes. And over time, occasionally, I've learned to ask for this. Speak the gospel to me. Remind me what's true. I've forgotten it again and I know it. And I need you to speak it into my life. Scripture says, Paul says, put on these things. Put on words of life. And here's maybe a a question to chew on as we go home today, an application question. Maybe ask somebody this week, maybe today, maybe in your car ride home. uh, What is it like to speak with me? How would you characterize my words, my conversation Does talking to me encourage you and point you closer to Christ or does it actually point you away? Do you leave a conversation with me encouraged or discouraged or utterly unchanged? Ask your spouse. Ask your parents. Ask your children. Ask your friend. You see, you can't really know the answer to this question until you ask because we all think that we are always turning up the wattage. And until you ask, you won't find out if that's really true. Our words have power. And lastly, what what does this passage tell us about? The hope for our words, briefly. Chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It says, be imitators of God as beloved children, children who are loved by their father, children who are learning to speak like their father. What is the hope for our words? The hope for our words is that God himself speaks words of hope into our lives. The hope for our words is that we are people who have received good words from our God. The words of the gospel, the words of Jesus coming in and bringing life and health and healing. Verse 2, it says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Jesus is God's good word spoken to us. Our sin, our brokenness, our alienation do not have the last word. But God speaking into our lives in redemptive, healing, saving ways. That's what's going to have the last word in God's people's lives. See, we can only walk in love, as it tells us to here, if we know and are being transformed by the love of God that God brings us first. Christ's word of forgiveness to us. If we don't know Christ's love for us, if we don't hear it spoken over us, then you're never going to be able to speak these good, powerful, redemptive words into other people's lives. If we don't know this, then the attempt to speak in a new way, to speak words of grace to each other, that attempt is going to crush us. Because we're going to reach down and look for words to give to someone else and find nothing there. What's the hope for our words? That Christ himself is speaking words of forgiveness into our life and that we're being transformed by that. There were people who have heard God's benediction spoken over us, spoken over us and into our lives. Now the final way Paul points that out in this passage is in verse 30 of chapter 4. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. God's good word over us is riveted to our lives by the presence of the Holy Spirit. This God who says, I will never leave you or forsake you, has given us his spirit to prove that to us. The hope for our words is that this word of forgiveness and life-changing grace comes into our lives and teaches us gradually more and more to speak those words of life and of hope, redemptive words to each other. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you do indeed speak benediction over us, good words, the good words of the gospel. And we pray, Father, that those would take firm root in our hearts and our lives that you would continue your good work of transforming this area of our lives, our speech, that it might honor you, that it might bring life and not death, because you have brought life to us with your word in Jesus. We come to you very much in need of your work and our lives by your spirit. And It's in Jesus' name that we pray.